Hey everybody, just a quick disclaimer, this episode was originally supposed to drop on July 1st, 2020. However, due to two, some unforeseen technical circumstances, I ended up actually having to get a new laptop entirely. So, without any further delay, I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. When problems overwhelm us and sadness smothers us, where do we find the will and the courage to continue? Well, the answer may come in the caring voice of a friend, a chance encounter with a book, or from a personal faith. For Janet, help came from her faith, but it also came from a squirrel. Shortly after her divorce, Janet lost her father. Then she lost her job. She had mounting money problems. But Janet not only survived, she worked her way out of despondency, and now she says life is good again. How could this happen? She told me that late one autumn day, when she was at her lowest, she watched a squirrel storing up nuts for the winter. One at a time, he would take them to the nest. And she thought, if that squirrel can take care of himself with a harsh winter coming on, so can I. Once I broke my problems into small pieces, I was able to carry them, just like those acorns, one at a time. gentlemen my name may hold no acclaim but it still remains david k martin and welcome to the first edition of mlw history now thankfully court bauer doesn't know i exist but somehow you good folks do and if you found this episode and haven't heard my pilot yet please check it out because that is all the self-explanatory context i'm gonna give you moving forward folks uh now then i don't want to get all biblical on you but um in the beginning. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, honestly, I don't know how long this is going to be. I've legitimately got like three pages of bullet points I want to hit on, and I don't want to hot shot or skip over anything. So before I get all histrionic on you and get into the actual history of Canadian pro wrestling, I wanted to paint you guys a, a word picture of wrestling beforehand, a little bit about Canada today and back then, kind of culminating up to the 20th century. And then I'm going to finalize on everything on the actual origins of Canadian wrestling. So no, you're not getting worked, but your boy does know the rules to the game. Titles are all about that clickbait. And not to mention, this is my podcast, so I'm going to do whatever I goddamn will please. So like I said in the pilot, as much as I wanted to keep this exclusively Canadian, perhaps that concept is merely just make-believe when you consider that the ethnic makeup of Canada is just too diverse to lay down any traditional American affinity of ownership. The fact is, is that... This, can't, this country is essentially a foundation made up and laid down by God itself for anyone in the world who wants to begin life again with a clean slate. Only instead of reincarnation, you're allowed to retain all of your own morals, life experiences, and acquired knowledge from your previous incarnation, and you're allowed to plant your own roots here with your own method of life state intact. You know, so long as you're able to conform to a different set of laws, adjust to four seasons, and contribute back to our society, in my opinion at least. 
So I'm not trying to sell you guys some Michael Moore cult-like bill of goods here. Like, beyond this country's 153-year existence are so many similar stories of an agonistic civil war, slave trading, fucking residential schools, which didn't even technically phase out of existence until my lifetime, amongst so many other inhumane acts and violence to other ethnicities. So even when I'm talking about Canada today, just keep in mind that Kanye West said it best. Racism's still alive, they'd just be concealing it. Like, no one's perfect, you feel me? Alright, so, as of July 1st, 2020, the United Nations recognizes 251 countries and territories in the world, whereas the American Department of State only acknowledges 196 nations. No matter what policy you choose to use as a frame of reference, you should know that if you don't count Antarctica, the two largest countries in the world are Russia and Canada, measured by total area. Now, currently Canada is the largest country in the Western Hemisphere, but it only ranks 38th overall in the list of global populations, just about 37.5 million people. So concurrently, the number of citizens is just largely unknowable, given the actual propensity of the population. I mean, after all, like, Stats Canada only does a countrywide census, what, every five years? It's just an educated guess at best. So right now there's, what, roughly less than 8 million immigrants living here, and most of which are just made up of your Desi Indians, your Chinese, and your Portuguese, and then there's over half a million recorded immigrants traveling here on work visas, just for, you know, your general labor work that us fucking white folk don't want to do. And then even I found out myself that this nation is considered home to over 149 different nationalities, with 122 of them being over the 10,000 mark. So just keep in mind that I mentioned that the US and the UN account nations and countries differently. Well, even more controversially than that is this weird fucking fact that Canadian is not only a nationality, but it's also an ethnicity. So you can be a Canadian without being ethnically Canadian, but that does not change the fact that Canadian is still considered your ethnicity? It's called mindfucking. You ever been mindfucked before? I don't think so. I'm mindfucking you right now. You are? Can you feel my dick fucking your mind? Well, I can't really feel anything. See, that's it. That's the art of it. I'm mindfucking the shit out of you. I don't even understand it. Like, it, this is fucking beyond me. And I'll, I'll actually tell you why this is an actual thing. And yes, it is pretty fucking stupid. Because fucking goddamn 11 million of them legitimately listed Canadian as their ethnicity. So just convince me that's not everyone who's ever dropped out of high school because this is some basic public school geography, man. I'm Dutch-Irish for Christ's sake, but when you break it down like the DX band, I'm sorry to say it's not just exclusively stupid white people in this category, and that's as far as I can go without sounding like a racist. Basically, it's pretty apparent that we just willed something into existence out of stupidity, y'all. Like, I've never heard of any other country adopting this method. And please, email me at maybelievepod at gmail.com. If you know something that I don't. Like, with all that being said, Canada has had four major influxes of immigration in 153 years, and its estimated remaining 8 million citizens is just comprised up of the Quebecois, which you would think is just the registered population of French-speaking Canadians. But no, sir. God damn it. It's, it's never that easy. No. Technically, it's, it's just the Quebecers. You see, Long before Brexit was even a thing, some of the French-speaking Canadians in Quebec have and still are historically opposed to the diplomacy of our other governments and greater Canadian laws. So like back in 2006, uh, 
The Prime Minister before Trudeau, Stephen Harper, allowed Quebec to be recognized as, what is this, quote, a nation within a united Canada, end quote. I mean, Jesus fucking Christ. Imagine you're born in Quebec, and your family has been in Canada for generations, and you get raised in Ontario or BC, but you, you're adopted or you don't have a good relationship with your folks, so you don't discover your heritage. And then combine that with hormones and the realities of everyday life, I think you've got yourself a pretty fucked up dude, probably suffering from some sort of identity crisis, because the local government is saying, well, you're born in Quebec, but you're grown here, and you currently live in Ontario, so... You can either be an English Canadian, a Quebecois, or just a Canadian. Does that make any fucking sense to you? Because it, it fucking doesn't to me. And I took the time to learn and explain this shit in the most lame ass terminology you are ever gonna find. It's unfucking fathomable. Alright, have I done an adequate job explaining this fucking nonsense to you? Because this is like some sort of political inception, I think. So, the vast majority of Canada, though, is largely inhabited because it's mostly rural with your countryside farmers and then it's also just fucking Icelands. Similar to how you guys have your own respective countries divided up by regions, states, and territories, Canada is no different, only we adopted the word province from the old French, which derives from the ancient Roman term provincia, which in Latin etymology breaks down as pro, meaning on behalf of, and vincere, which can be translated as either to triumph or to take control of. So if you played Assassin's Creed or Fallout New Vegas, you should already be up on your Latin game, bud. But if you're not, then essentially the word province meant a territory or junction held in control of or on behalf of its government, which is the most generic term of jurisdiction. Yet today, so many people, Canadians included, think provinces are symbiotic to Canada. Well, newsflash, jackass, there's nearly 70 other countries with provinces as well. But before we move any further, just so any international listeners can uh, understand comparatively speaking, Canada is divided up into 10 actual provinces and then three territories. And just like how the United States, comparatively speaking, y you can't just compare an entire topographical country to that of a different physiographic location. Like, you're a fucking idiot if you try to do so and prove me wrong at makebelievepod at gmail.com. <laughs> But essentially, I live in Ontario, so if you want a, a decent comparison, I could compare that to Minnesota or New York for, for like, for what it's worth. And basically, uh, Canada is just made up of 91% land area, while water makes up almost the remaining 9%. And just for the fuck of it, any Canadian ever told that Canada has 20% of the world's water supply is kind of slightly misinformed. You see, the truth of the matter is that only like less than half of the water. 7% I want to say is the global supply. That's actually our renewable drinking water. The remainder of it though is your fossil water retained in your lakes, your underground aquifers, and your glaciers. And because of that, it's up north in the Arctic region. Therefore, it's unavailable to the 85% of the Canadian population who live on the country's southern borders. But all that really means is that the remaining supply, while still abundant, it isn't heavily treated or resourced for consumption. You feel me? I'm just saying, for 38 million people, that only accounts for half a percent of the world's population. So I think we can take for granted that we're not paying as much for water or hydro than others, because there is enough to go around, y'all, as long as we quit littering and... Aw, oh, come on, you know this. Littering and... Littering and... Uh, and uh... Littering and... Littering and... Littering and... Littering and... Littering and... 
littering and smoking the reefer. Alright, I think I've painted you guys a decent enough word picture of the landscape of Canada. As I make my way through this series, I'm gonna throw more useless facts and stats at you whenever I feel it's relevant or necessary. So, for now, Pete Rock, drop the needle on the wax and I'll get right back to you after this. I reminisce for a spell, or shall I say think back? Yeah. 22 years ago to keep it on track. Uh -huh. The birth of a child on the 8th of October. A toast, but my granddaddy came sober. Count all the fingers and the toes, now I suppose you A little while ago when I asked my friends on Facebook what the oldest professions in the world were, I got answers like artists, <laughs> fucking slavery, craftsmen, storytellers, farmers, and uh, mostly overabundant responses about prostitution. So... Touche. Well, I say whether you're man or animal, it's simply fighting. That is our most primordial instinct. And long before we were farming, crafting, drawing, or paying to bust a nut in a girl's butt, the original rite of passage was surviving childhood. And how we survived as a species is developing various combat tactics and hunting skills to keep ourselves alive, and then pass down those traditions and knowledge to our kids to keep them alive. Like, that's why I feel fighting is so ingrained into the human condition, because it's our most basic, primal, animalistic nature. And I feel strongly about how universally intriguing and awe-inspiring a fight can be to any person, because at the right moment, in the perfect setting, sometimes sentimental respect, reputations, backgrounds, or narratives aren't even necessary. Sometimes just seeing body language, blood, facial expressions, and split-second reactions of two strangers fighting can tell the most emotionally driven stories that man has ever mythologized. Even I'll even I'll even compare the color white to combat because it's so pure and raw in its essence and it's meant to appear absent of logic due to its spontaneous nature. Like a combatant in comparison is simply fighting with heart just to survive another day. And that's why I feel like the ideals of professionalism and combat create an outlier to that rule because the ability to think and breathe change all the dynamics because when you put two skilled fighters two confident survivors against each other the, the dynamics of the exhibition become scientific upon future re-examinations because time spent experience earned wisdom gained and pain endured forge legacies made of either cast iron or stainless steel it just it just depends on the variables of life according to uh Canadian sports historian Dr. Charles Nathan Hatton, and then another fellow historical author, Tim Corvin, wrestling in specific is the most primitive sport recorded in human history. Tim Corvin found wrestling's earliest documented exhibitions begin in Babylonian and Egyptian art dating back to 3000 BC. Pro wrestling's existence can be traced back to the Eastern Mediterranean before the age of Christ, becoming a recorded job title as far back as 2000 years ago. Followed by that are findings of literary presence in the Sumerian epic of Gilgamesh and its extended roots of origins are believed to have been also practiced in ancient Persian and Chinese civilizations as well. Like fucking wrestling was even reportedly used to settle differences in Roman culture and obviously the Greeks would later go on to popularize the violence as a sport in the ancient Olympic Games. However, it wouldn't be until like way late in the game, like 1830s, that the term professional wrestler 
would be coined in France to represent paid-to-compete showman wrestlers taking on all-comers at a carnival for 500 francs. And yes, I also did do the inflation and the conversions. So back in 1830, 500 francs, which is like a Swiss dollar, just equivalent to a stunning 10 bucks. But today, that inflates to about 526 USD at fucking 721 Canadian. That's not bad for like 10-15 minutes of survival. And among the confines of those various enclosed societies are all these original recorded instances of skilled grapplers engaging in hand-to-hand -hand combat in front of an audience. And even I'd personally presume that even as far back then that the baby faces were playing to the crowd, cupping their ears, flexing their muscles, maybe even doing a little hot dog in the grandstanding, oh yeah! <laughs> but uh, the Sport of Kings has so many continued remnants of history scattered throughout the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, and the Renaissance era. But I think where grappling would actually begin to redefine itself as a physical activity is in the British Isles. Because with the power of Darwinism, that is where that is where grappling would evolve into what we recognize as professional wrestling today. Like even I gotta swallow any preconceived nationalistic pride when I state, fuck the people who emigrated and settled here three, four hundred some odd years ago. Because they embarked on a mission to find new land, but in that time, they uh, slaughtered 90% of the aboriginal population like bison, and this was all before they could properly migrate and colonize. Wow, what a terrible segue that is to this next part. Fucking hell. Maybe I should actually skip one. <laughs> um, I found a, I found a noteworthy article online talking Oh shit, talking about how the native tribes can be credited as Canada's first wrestling trainers because they were teaching combat training to the tribe's youth in a similar vein to the old school work shoot style of training that Cornette fucking loves so much. Yeah, uh, essentially, the trainers would say, and forgive me if this sounds racist, This is headlock. Okay, now get out of it. Okay, now apply it onto me and don't let me escape thank you thank you bear walked into a bar bear said to deer may i please have a drink and so deer said to bear why the big pause many moons ago pony and eagle walked up to coyote Pony said to Coyote, I am very mad at Eagle. Will you yell at him for me? Coyote said to Pony, Why can you not yell yourself? And Pony replied, Because I am a little horse. So, it's debatable, and perhaps it doesn't hold any weight, but like I said in the pilot episode, you can take me at my word or not. You can use me as a reference guide to do to do your own research, or you can just fucking listen to me obliviously like sheep. So anyways, before the impact of globalization, there was a plethora of lef there was a plethora of wrestling styles that derived from your brace from your basic grappling style. Jesus Christ. Don't ask me what some of these are, like unless you're prepared to pay a brother in exchange. But some of the earliest documented wrestling styles I could find were Westmoreland style, which is an English style that descends of Norse wrestling from Vikings, Lincolnshire style, which is a historical influential hybrid of ancient catch wrestling, 
Then there's Cornish style, which may be the most transcendent style of wrestling, as you recognize it sooner in a scrap on the ice or in a bar fight than register it in your mind as wrestling anymore. And then there's also Cumberland style, which was somehow derivative of uh, Westmoreland style, but mind you, these are all based off their geographical locations. But my personal favorite <laughs> was horseback style, which upon first time reading required so much further investigation because to my naive ass mind, this just sounds like some old timey way of saying donkey punch. <laughs> Donkey punch. Noun. 1. A sucker punch, especially one delivered to the back of the neck of a sexual partner who is crouching on all fours, also used metaphorically. And it turns out that this outrageous ass style of wrestling is exactly what it sounds like and it is still played to this day in fucking Kazakhstan of all places. I didn't even know that was real. That's the place Borat is from. I mean, it's on YouTube. It has its own wiki page with arbitrary rules. Like, I love how this is really actually a fucking thing. I'm gonna lose my mind if I find out Wakanda is real next. But. The, the, the three most influential styles that I could find of the times were <laughs> collar and elbow style, which was a standing style of Irish wrestling. And like the name implies, you start with a collar and elbow tie-up and try to take the opponent down with a hip toss or a trip. And believe me, there is nothing graceful about this drunken style, but it was introduced to North America from the incoming Irish immigrants. And although it phased out for the more popular styles of wrestling I'm going to talk about later, it's still practiced in fucking judo of all things. And then there's the world famous Greco-Roman style, which from what I understand was introduced to America in 1875 by a Frenchman named Thabod Bauer. However, the history of Greco-Roman style is very indiscriminate at best with its timelines. Essentially, the style as we know it was just called Greco-Roman as a way to imply a golden thread of suggestion that this particular style was used by that of those <laughs> of the ancient civilizations. In fact, I can credit an Italian wrestler named uh, Basilio Bartoletti as being the first to proclaim that this style is quote-unquote Greco-Roman to underline that connection. Just further proving that wrestlers have been working us since its professional inception. I mean, Greco-Roman is the most respected style of its genre, but it is far from the most popular. However, it's been contested at the technical first Olympic Games in 708, and it's been included at every edition of the Summer Games since 1908. But now, finally, there's the ever-beloved catch style of wrestling that both modern wrestling, Timothy Thatcher, and MMA are based off of today. This is the style that Abe Lincoln was performing in his younger days before becoming one of the most respected vampire hunters in American history. Like, its formation is evolution in itself as a hybrid of grappling style that was developed in Britain in the early 1870s and popularized by carnies who, like any other wrestler, learned the basics and then those men would go on to develop their own unique submission holds and stretches to stay ahead of the competition. This style was also incorporated into the Olympics, but you'd know it more as mixed wrestling or freestyle wrestling, the most popular style of all. The characteristics of Catch's Catch Can that make it the most preferred style is, is that the fact that it's, again, a mixture of all the other aforementioned styles, as well as a mixture of judo and jiu-jitsu. 
The actual meaning behind the name is that catch is slang for hold. So you're allowed to lock on a hold any way you can. Does that make sense? So in my notes, I found that a guy named J.G. Chambers, who was an exercise coach and an editor of a newspaper in 1871. Fuck, I didn't write for where. My bad. Um, he's the first person I could find in recorded history demonstrating catch wrestling publicly. Go figure. But it wasn't until like way later near the turn of the 19th century that the style plagued its way to the... Ooh, Sorry, bad word. <laughs> uh, to America, thanks for the traveling French carnies. You see, back then, matches were still contested mostly as either athletic shows or as open challenges to an audience. Early wrestling matches took place simply on uh, wrestling floors and grounds and on mats and on boxing rings. Basically anywhere that you could charge spectators for admission. I'm talking about coal mines, lumber yards, taverns, dance halls, theaters, uh existing arenas of the era. So, although the most popular of all styles was your outlaw, mud show, bullshit, catch wrestling, because it was predicated on being what was considered illegal wrestling in the Olympics. And the athletes who had no desire to compete at the highest level would adopt the job title of professional wrestler to distinguish that substyle of catch, which has always seemingly been criticized for the bastardization of the sport. Go figure. You see, shoot wrestling matches could potentially be a fucking slog to get through. They could literally go hours with the right opponents. Hence the need for not only hookers, but shady businessmen rigging matches. It's like David Shoemaker has this good quote from his book, Squared Circle, Life, Death, and Professional Wrestling, about how fan perception back then was, quote, the effects of the carnival business and the development of modern wrestling are immense, end quote. Meaning that fans and reporters were getting smart enough to acknowledge that, hey, if that was me, I wouldn't be doing that. I wouldn't be taunting or showing off. I'd be finishing this dude off first. So sometime in the late 19th century, that's when wrestlers would begin taking side bets with either carnival promoters or plants in the crowd or backers. And that was the dawning of the missing piece in the formula between amateur, Olympic level, and professional. And I'm sorry if I gotta be the one to tell you this, folks. Usually this is a job for Meltzer or the internet or your parents, but it's a fucking work, y'all. And it had to be out of the sheer nature of survival. There's that word again. Otherwise, the wrestlers would go bust and, uh, back to the coal mines with ya, would be shouted at by their teenage wives. But it wasn't necessary all the time, everywhere, with everyone. And that's the mind fucked to an absurd degree. Because apparently some of the best could fetch backers who would put up large sums of money on the outcomes. But in my opinion, I, I, I'd assume that if these matches weren't staged, then they were your open challenges in your festival setting exhibitions. That's just my speculation at best and that's the most fucked up part you guys because when it's real it's amateur and when it's fixed it's fucking professional I know I have to take my glasses off because that just it just doesn't sound right and as much as I love as much as I love wrestling and as much as I love to shit on wrestling I'm being completely serious you guys when I say it's because of these traveling circuses that these professional wrestlers were able to interact with fellow clowns from different towns and learn new techniques hookers and shooter uminos alike would become great submission specialists masters of their craft far be it from potheads but nonetheless incredible joint manipulators even the term no holds barred originated as a, a, a as a as a promotional selling point to describe catch wrestling tournaments during the late 19th century wherein no wrestling holds were banned from competition. Which is honestly what I thought the very first time I heard it as a kid. And despite wrestling not applying tap out or submission for a very large portion of history, 
Catch wrestling has almost always featured two out of three falls matches where you'd win by scoring a pinfall, submission, or literally making your opponent scream, Uncle! So historians may claim that there are only 60 moves by the turn of the century, but I've been preparing the scroll listing all the holes that were invented by these unnamed marksmen, and I know about a thousand and four, and I wrote them all down, and here we go. Maleko, you claim to be the man of a thousand holes, but I counted, and you know about 60, but I know a thousand and four, and I wrote them all down. Here we go. Hold one, arm drag. Hold two, arm bar. Hold three, the moss covered. Three-handled family gradunzel. Why does he just Number mail four, us this list and we'll announce it? He's just ranting. Number five, the Saskatchewan spinning nerve hole. This must be meathead microphone night. You He's think so? Bar. He's got 998 to Number go. Nine, Get the hook. The we're out of here. Shut up. Get a haircut. Number ten, right-handed. So, you know what? If I didn't need these notes, I'd just, I'd just tear them up. Just to represent me going off script, like a fucking Russo segment. Because I just want to give a quick shout out to my buddy Clayton Pie. Although he did lose his 86 kilogram qualifying match this past March in uh, freestyle before the world went to shit. I sincerely hope, man, that you do continue training. And if you're listening, bud, just remember, you cannot throw your life away for professional wrestling until you become Canada's first straight, white, Olympic, gold, medalist, with a nutsack. <laughs> Or at least get your face on the Wheaties box, dude. Like, I may have more listeners than Ring of Honor has cable viewers right now, but my goal is to be more successful than TNA currently. So don't give up, brother. 2024, 2025. Like, y'all, this man is gonna be the fucking future. He's the next Brock Lesnar. All he needs to do is drop that Chad Gable shit and steal that Timothy Thatcher gimmick. But I think we can all agree that do not become the next Kurt Angle. Just become the first Clayton Pie, brother. All right, I need a, I need a fucking drink because I still have a lot more ground to cover and I haven't even scratched the surface, obviously. I know what you've all been waiting for, so I will get right to it right after the break. Uh, no, my parents moved to Canada. I'm very happy about that. They moved to Canada. America's hat. Uh, it's so much better, because they couldn't move to America. Canada's jockstrap. <laughs> but Canada and America get compared all the time. You know, and I think they're very different countries. And all you have to do is look at their leaders, all right? Canada elected Justin Trudeau. He's very pretty, you know? He tries a little bit too hard. He's like the Anne Hathaway of world leaders. <laughs> you know, but he's well-read, he speaks English and French, he's very Canadian. Now, America... <laughs> yeah, America elected Donald Trump. The Donald Trump of world leaders. <laughs> you know, can't read, <laughs> barely speaks English. <laughs> the only thing Canadian about him is that he's the same color as Kraft Dinner. <laughs> All right, like... I love Canada, all right? Clean water, universal health care, women's curling. Oh my God. <laughs> I love women's curling and I love Canada. I love Canada, but I'm not American about it, you know? Because Americans are obnoxiously patriotic. They need you to know that they're American, all right? But Canadians, like we're proud to be Canadian, but part of being Canadian is that, especially as a child of an immigrant, we never forget who we are, all right? I think that is really the difference between our two countries. And I think, here's an example to illustrate the difference, all right? I was recently in Europe. I was at the airport, 
was in line to board my flight, and this woman wearing a shirt made out of a US flag and a hat that said, make America great again, which were both probably made in China. <laughs> she cuts in front of me in line, right? But I'm a Canadian, so I don't say anything. She gets on the plate in front of me. She's got three bags. She puts them in the overhead compartment. There's no room for my stuff. But I'm a Canadian, so I don't say anything. And then she gets in the seat right in front of me, reclines the seat the whole way right in my face. But I'm a Canadian, so I don't say anything. But because I'm Chinese, I passive-aggressively need her in the back for the entire flight. <laughs> I might not be able to make America great again, but as a minority, I can definitely make America uncomfortable. <laughs> All right, you guys have been fantastic. Thank you guys very much. And welcome back, everybody, to As Advertised, the origins of Canadian professional wrestling. All right, enough stalling. Perhaps I should have told you guys in the beginning that the truth is I have no fucking clue who the boxing promoters were that were booking the matches here first, or if any of those matches were an attraction, or if those matches were important, trailblazing, groundbreaking, marquee landmarks. However, fucking get this. The oldest wrestling match in North American history I could find was a guy named Mike Kirk doing a two-hour Broadway with a cop named Lieutenant Lewis Ainsworth on November 17, 1857 in, in Hartford, Connecticut. That match was contested over a $700 wager and the terms of the match were collar and elbow style. First to three falls wins. But I couldn't find out what happened to the money. And then the oldest recorded match in Canadian history was William Miller defeating Thabod Bauer, the godfather of American wrestling and the very first mass wrestler in history at the Royal Opera House in Toronto on November 13, 1876 in a two out of three falls match that went reportedly an hour and 22 minutes. And then from there, on January 29, 1858, Louis Ainsworth defeats Philip Farley, this time in New York City, but that's all I know. August 20th, 1868, Lou Thompson defeats Homer Lane in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Noteworthy because in some of my books and searches, this was once credited as the oldest documented wrestling match. From there, on November 25th, 1875, Andre Cristal wrestled William Miller to a draw. According to the Aurora Dearborn Independent, based out of Indiana, that match was, quote, a match that begun in the Grand Opera House yesterday on a Tuesday night and began and lasted until 2 o'clock yesterday morning. The wrestlers had struggled continuously during the four-hour bout, winning a fall apiece, but the violent exertion had brought them down to a state of exhaustion, end quote. To me, that sounds like 240 minutes of straight-up, non-stop, grounded-pound technical wizardry, if you ask me, but Jesus fucking Christ. That's like some modern-day Chris Hero CM Punk shit. Uh, coincidentally, on my birthday, just five days after the first recorded Canadian wrestling match on November 18th, 1876, Thabod Bauer defeats Wilhelm Hagster in Toronto at the same venue as mentioned before. Between 1879, though, and 1890, I could only find six recorded matches in all of Canada, and all of which took place here in southwestern Ontario, with most notable being, according to WrestlingData.com, the first match in Kingston, Ontario was sometime in 1886, where Duncombe C. Ross defeats H.U. McDonald in a match that went five fucking hours. 
And then from there, in April 13th, 1889, Greek George defeats H. Williams in a horseback-style wrestling match in Boston, Mass. Oh my god, every time I say that, my mind just immediately goes to the gutter. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. As you'll later discover in future episodes, Montreal would begin its near 100-year status as the wrestling epicenter of Canada in 1981. But for whatever reason, I can't find much between 1896 until 1891, with the first recorded match outside of Ontario happening in Montreal, Quebec on Monday, March 2nd in a match where John McMahon defeated Jim Crowley. You see, wrestling wasn't scratching the surface of interest in Canada until like way late in the game like COVID. I'm sorry. <laughs> so for much of the 18th and 19th centuries, we're just kind of based around colonization. And although our ancestors have blood on their hands, I credit Nova Scotia and Newfoundland as uh, deserving the credit for societal progression for abolishing slavery decades before it became a national-wide law. National-wide. Nationwide law. So the thing is, Canada's population for much of the 1800s is just speculation at best, with my best guess being around the 5 million mark, give or take. So although things would trend faster, for lack of a better term, within communities, it would take decades for any popular sport to branch out beyond a province if it didn't get picked up by a, a college, for example. And hear me out, I live near Beachville, Ontario, and Beachville is like the fucking boonies, just straight up farming community with a church, no real establishments of any sort. But one year before the sport of baseball was formally commissioned or instituted in New York City, the very first recorded game of baseball in North America took place right here in Beachville back in 1838, but didn't blow up in southwestern Ontario until like the mid-1860s. Then, some Quebec citizens were making a concerted effort in regulating and organizing Canada's first clubs, associations, and organizations for lacrosse, cycling, and horse racing. Uh, by 1874, Canadians were introducing Americans to the sport of rugby, and by 1876, the Canadian Baseball Association was formed. And 20 years later, it created a Negro League, a Dairy Face League, and a desegregated minor league. So across the board, Canadians were on the forefront of the development and the popularization of lacrosse, baseball, basketball, hockey, Hockey and football like hell James Nysmith invented the game of basketball while he was teaching over in Boston Massachusetts I believe it's believed that our aboriginals are attributed for inventing lacrosse but it was a dentist from Montreal this fucking shyster named William Beers that got the ball rolling to the point where lacrosse was once mythologized as being Canada's national sport declared by an act of parliament and no doubt Dr. Beers probably started that rumor himself you fucking shyster and with all that being said, I believe it's our society's inherent belief that we can be the best at any competition that drives us. And in retrospect, I think it's ironically bittersweet how so many Canadians have had to leave the country to find wealth, fame, and success elsewhere. Even egotistically, I think when we believe that we are now the best among our peers, we gotta migrate to progress. Craving a foreign competition to validate our ego, you know? Alright. Alright, so for this next part, I'd like to give some thanks and appreciation for Vance Nevada for his book, Wrestling in the Canadian West, Essential, Essential Learning. You know how people say they as a euphemism, like, they fucked me over, or they're watching me, that type of shit? Well, essentially when historians talk about the origins of Canadian wrestling, they refer to the city of Toronto like we refer to WWE's decisions to Vince McMahon's. Like, they are the same entity. The truth is, the mayors of Toronto, I believe, Angus, one second, Angus Morrison, and 
James E. Smith. I believe these two men were marks for carnivals, but they didn't want to wait until September for the fall fair. So, so when people say Toronto hosts the first wrestling match, I believe it was actually the mayors who were coordinating and setting up these events at the Royal Opera House, the original ROH, which held approximately 1,700 in capacity. Apparently, one of the wrestling matches being contested during um, James E. Smith's tenure was that of Lou Thompson wrestling Homer Lane in June of 1868, at least two months before the August 20th bout. But there's nothing more concrete I could find beyond just a couple of pages. And even furthermore, uh, Greg Oliver claimed that the all-time biggest wrestling star of the 1800s, William Muldoon, had a match in Toronto. I think it had to be in the 1880s, because I could not find a fucking thing to back up his claim. But then again, but then again, y'all, like, he's the historian, I'm a fucking nobody. Help me out with that newspapers.com subscription. I'm not saying, but I'm just saying. Alright, moving forward. From Mad Dogs, Midgets, and Screwjobs, Circus Freak John the Green Mountain Boy McMahon, <laughs> no relation, was considered the ambassador of collar and elbow wrestling style because he had a 17-year undefeated streak. He came from Bakersfield, Vermont, and why I mention him is because he defeated a fellow surf sucker named Thomas Copeland. Hustle no relation, who's allegedly either from Montreal or over here in Peterborough, Ontario, to unify the American and the Canadian Wrestling Championships on July 22nd of 1870 in Troy, New York. But I can't prove if either of those titles existed. Like, I found a few men who will claim to be Canadian wrestling champions in their day, but there are literally no records of existence to back up any such self-proclaimed accolades. Like, technically, in my opinion, there were no Canadian amateur wrestling champions until 1860. 18? God damn it. 1969, with the advent of Wrestling Canada Lut. Uh, perhaps the masterclass billing as an international unification match was the perfect gimmick because the marquee match went viral as fuck being covered in Boston, Chicago, Indianapolis, and Montreal. Genuinely, most Canadian wrestlers of the time were more self-trained tough men. They used wrestling as more of like a side hustle to potentially make half as much, if not as much, if not more, than your traditional 9 to 5. If you look hard enough, you'll find a bunch of northern job guys spread out throughout records here or there. If you want, I will mention them if you pay me. But before I get into the inevitable end of the 19th century, I just wanted to briefly give you guys a rundown on the two most notable Canadian wrestlers of the bygone era to finish off the show. I'll get to that, but don't worry, your boy just needs a fucking drink first, maybe a bowl, and I'll get back to you right after the break. <laughs> Is mad, I get more butt than ass Fuck a fair one, I get mine the fast way. Ski mask way, nigga ransom notes. Far from handsome, but damn a nigga tote much. More guns than roses, foes is shaking in their boots. A visible bully, like the gooch disappear, vamoose, you whack to me. Take them rhymes back to the factory. I see the gimmicks, the whack lyrics, the shit is depressing, pathetic. Please forget it. You're mad cause my style you're admiring. Don't be mad, UPS is hiring. You should have been the cop, fuck hip hop. With that freestyle, you're bound to get shot. Not from Houston, but I rap a lot. Pack the gap a lot, the flame's about to drop. Uh. And welcome back to our regularly scheduled program. Uh, before we move forward, let me ask you guys something. Let me see if I can't make y'all smart marks feel a little smarter. Uh, pause this podcast and try to find out who the first Canadian pro wrestler was to win any 
any American championship at all. Ready, set, go. You're absolutely incorrect, sir. The answer I was looking for was one Daniel Stuart McLeod, also known as George Little, born June 14th, 1861 in Hamilton, Ontario. Although the internet will tell you Chicago, Illinois, or Scotland. Where? Just Scotland. <laughs> um, as far as I know, before he was able to make a living as a wrestler, he moved to Nanaimo, BC to pursue the exuberant world of coal mining. I asked some people on the Professional Wrestling Historical Society Facebook group about him, but not much is really known about the guy. So, from what I understand, it's my assumption that when he began his career in 1889, he actually would later go on to move to California sometime between 89 and 1890 because he would quit his job after winning the Pacific Coast Heavyweight Championship. <laughs> what a mark. Respectively, he stood five foot six and he weighed 200 pounds, and apparently he even battled uh, the original strangler, Evan Lewis, to a draw in 1894. And later that same year, he defeated the revered German shoot-fighting grappler, Ernesto Robert. A few years go by after that, and he's found the midst of a championship feud with the top guy himself. And after a five-month chase, he was finally able to defeat the legendary Farmer Burns. After a, le after a two-year run in Indianapolis on October 26, 1897. For professional wrestling's original American heavyweight championship that existed between 1881 and 1992, and I gotta take off my glasses and rub my eyes because we're gonna fucking we're gonna we're gonna go for a ride here. Because just when I think I can turn the page and move on with my life, my curiosity gets the best of me, and then I go looking up some more shit that I don't know about, and then I fall down a fucking rabbit hole of more useless trivial historical information that I gotta learn about. Like fucking hell. So this original American heavyweight championship as they call it, or the OG American title as I'm gonna call it, is the most convoluted, carny ass bullshit I have ever read about in my life. And I wouldn't even have to mention it if this cocksucker wasn't a part of the problem, because according to the internet, the OG American title officially has 26 recognized reigns and 44 years of activity. Thank you, WrestlingTitles.com. But this is some next level Terry Funk fabulous moolah type shit. Like, essentially, there could be more than one version of this championship out there in existence, and in some cases, being champion was nothing more than the equivalent of a self appointed moniker. Kind of like how the NWA oversaturated the world with regional, national, and state championships for every territory. Basically, any guy who won the belt in front of a crowd could say he was still the champion in any other city unaware of the title switch. Like, due to the confusion and the disputes, over claims, reigns, and official ownership, Daniel McLeod is regarded in some circles as a Bob Backlund-esque champion with either one four-year reign, one five-year reign, or one reign that lasted previously from the date he won it until Christmas 1902 in Worcester, Mass. But it can never be that simple, can it? Nope. So, McLeod was champion for, like, four and a half years, kind of. He was essentially a placeholder champion in the same vein as WWE's secondary world titles, or more so the WCW tag team titles when they were taping so far ahead of Slamboree 94 that fucking Harlem Heater Nasty Boys technically had a negative 18 days reign, if that makes any sense. So, on one hand, it's believed that he never lost the belt from 1897 until July 11th of 1901 to Tom Jenkins in Cleveland, Ohio. Well. On the other hand, Joe Acton is claimed to have been the champion for over five and a half years, and that overlaps the next three title changes. And then on the prosthetic hand, it's a fact that Evan the Strangler Lewis defeated Ernesto Robert to unify the British Catches Catch Can Championship with the Greco-Roman World Championship to become the inaugural OG champion in 1899. But the title history begins with Edwin Bibby 
wait, did I say that right? Edwin Bibby. Ed, Edwin, yep. Edwin Bibby in 1891. Like, keep in mind, however, like, fucking Farmer Burns defeated Evan Lewis in Chicago on 420-1895 for the American Wrestling Championship and $2,000 in a best of five falls match. It's like, holy fuck, what can you believe in? I just threw all of these scenarios at you and they all could be true. Like, well... At least approximately a year and change after Jenkins beat Daniel for the title, McLeod won the championship back on Christmas Day in 1902 in Worcester, Mass, and then lost it back to Jenkins 100 days later in Buffalo, New York on March 4th, 1903. That's the history I'm going to believe in. As far as the man, the most interesting story I could find on him was a tale of how McLeod disguised himself somehow and challenged a young Frank Gotch to a shoot wrestling match on a fucking horse track without any notice or preparation. Like, this would end up being Gotch's first ever wrestling match. It wouldn't be until, like, way later that Gotch received a card from McLeod in the mail detailing the true extent of the events that took place on June 18th of 1899. That's a fucking wild story. Uh, McLeod continued to wrestle until 1913 when he declared retirement, but I did not write against who, my bad. However, though, he did return for one more match 16 years later against Gus Sonnenberg in 1929, albeit in a losing effort, but uh, I guess a cool passing of the torch style match. He had 77 recorded matches, and he lived to be the incredible age of 98. Like, what a fucking life, man. It's, only, it's a shame we just don't know more about him. Alright, this is gonna be fucking awesome. The next person I'll proverbially pass the torch to next is Montreal's own Louis Sierre. And I shit you not, when I was researching this guy, I realized, like, ding ding ding, I fucking learned about him when I was in French class, like, back in grade 6, 7, or 8. This fucking guy wrestled the world's tallest man, Edouard Bepri, at a fucking carnival on March 25th, 1901. It was billed as the world's strongest man versus the world's tallest man. And it was a complete farce, it was a shit show. But I need my buddy Stevie or another Quebecer to attest to this belief that I have because despite his reported shortcomings in the ring I believe it's who the man is and what the man did mixed with the perfect variables of life that his legacy is cemented in Quebec history forever due mostly to the fact that he was a strong man of superhuman strength more than his capability to catch wrestle obviously it's just kind of like how it's to me it's just kind of like how Andre was wrestling in an already carnivalized world, so wrestling became a necessary job title for the world to get exposed to him, akin to all the other miracles and freaks of nature who couldn't conform to everyday society due to prejudice. I'm sorry if I come off as offensive, I'm just telling it like it is, y'all. Anyways, um, wrestling, as we know, is a side hustle for people to pay to see someone characterized as unique. Like, we all understand that, right? Well, Louis has a biographer named Paul Old that could tell you literally everything you want to know on this mythical figure of French-Canadian folklore. Like, there are many documentaries, books, fucking hell, a full-length movie made on this guy. And unlike Rocky, this dude was real. And therefore, he earned his statue at Parc de Honfort, or Strongman's Place in English. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um... Louis Sierre was born Sepreniosia on October 10th, 1863 in Naperville, Quebec. He was the youngest of 17 children, and even in his adolescence, he had developed unimaginable superhuman strength. He was more or less self-trained as he learned to wrestle by beating the shit out of English kids in his neighborhood in the 1880s. Um, as I, far as I understand, he grew up in Lowell, Massachusetts, 
so I haven't decided on how far in depth I wanted to go on him, ironically due to the extensivity of his life, because he's not regarded by any means a good wrestler in his day, that was just his side hustle. So instead, I'm gonna really just kinda focus more on his incredible feats of strength, because in today's world of scientific method and nefarious shortcuts through steroids, nobody can logically fathom Louis' untamed power. It's technically physically impossible for anyone to naturally match his Thor-like ability. I suppose what I will tell you though is, is that his family moved to Lowell, Mass when he was just a kid where he adopted the name Louis because Murica. So he needed something easier in pronunciation to say instead of Saprenion on the regular, you know? Uh, he moved back to Quebec, specifically Montreal, in his adulthood with his wife after his first try as a professional strongman ended rather unceremoniously with his promoter. So, so I believe... His first job in Canada was that of a foot patrol constable for the most dangerous lawless sector of old Montreal, Saint Condong, now Petite Bourgeon. Uh, with four other patrolmen, there's a story of when they were all once attacked and outnumbered by a gang of motherless fuckers. I can't believe this, but according to the source, the four patrolmen cowarded the fuck out while Louis single-handedly decimated a dozen bastards by himself by doing, and I quote, by picking up his adversaries and using them as missiles and battering rams. End quote. Like, can you believe that? And if that doesn't sound animated as fuck, here's one more unbelievable. Sometime later, after Louis Sierre virtually rid the block of crime with his bare fucking hands, he was once more jumped while out on patrol, only this time, because the crime rate was so low, there were just two officers out on patrol this night, him being one of them, for good measure, and uh, they see these two drunks fighting in an alleyway, so they intervene, right? Only this time, they get jumped again by a similar gang of a dozen motherless fuckers. But these guys brought fucking goddamn hatchets, okay? It's the 20th century, and these people think, guns won't be able to kill the world's strongest man. Quick, get, 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 get me a dozen men, and get, 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 get me some hatchets. Like, what? Just when you think the story could not take a turn for reality, yes, his partner did die from the attack. He was fucking slaughtered, and yes, Louis did grab two of his assailants, one per hand, and begun using them as human fucking shields and weaponry. He, he walks away from this scuffle with a single superficial cut. Like, get the entire fuck out of here. And also, because he paid his dues in Montreal on the force, he'd actually receive invaluable news coverage throughout police gazettes. And that's what would help him when he eventually found his passion for powerlifting again. Like, him and one of his older brothers actually went on to form a circus for themselves just to control all the revenue. And his capabilities within no time made him become one of the first nationally known figures outside of government in all of Canada. Plus, he's getting stories written up about him in New York, which may as well be the epicenter of America. His popularity grew to the point where during the first tour of Europe, he was invited to have dinner with the royal family, and he amazed the Marquis of Queensbury so much he was gifted a horse at the dinner in his honor. And you know how? Because he fascinated everyone by eating 20 pounds of meat in one sitting. Alright, are you ready for this? September 21st, 1891. Zepreno draws a crowd of 10,000 in Montreal to witness him restrain two teams of horses from separating his arms crossed for 55 seconds. He withstood 4,800 pounds on each arm. Jesus. September 7th, 1892 in Lowell, Massachusetts, he lifts a compound weight of 558 pounds with his middle fucking finger of his right hand. Was he actually real? Boston, Massachusetts, May 27th, 1895 at a museum. Louis Sierre became the first person to ever backlift 4,000 pounds, but that wasn't enough 
This motherfucker, this big swinging dick, went and did 4,337 pounds to remind people who not to fuck with. And finally, on May 8th, 1896 on Chicago, Illinois, and this is not the end of him, man. This is, I'm cutting myself off here. On May 8th, 1896 in Chicago, Illinois, Louis Sierre started his demonstrations off by doing a crucifix hold, where you stand in a Jesus Christ pose holding weights in a balance for as long as you can endure. Well, Big Lou clearly rocked that big dick energy because he maintained a 97 and a quarter pound dumbbell in his right hand and an 88 straight pound dumbbell in his left. Do you understand how astronomically phenomenal that is? Just spend four bucks at the store on a two liter of pop and a 500 milliliter bottle of water, take that home and assume the crucifix hold with just that and see how long you can handle a couple of pounds for five minutes. And just keep in mind, I said that he started off his demonstrations doing that because later he went on to become the first person to ever lift 1,500 pounds with his knees. Fucking 1,897 pounds to be exact. And then, in the same setting, he breaks his own previously set record by fucking lifting 789 pounds with just his right hand. 39 pounds over the last record. And fuck me running. As if that wasn't incredulous enough, his legitimate grand finale that night was pressing and push-pressing a single 162.5 pound dumbbell 36 consecutive times with his right arm. Oh my god. Oh, I need... Oh, I need to get under the influence after this. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. The extensive yet summarized history of the origins of Canadian professional wrestling. I don't know when I'm going to be dropping the next episode, but be on the lookout for sporadic releases until I figure out a good uh, time to effort ratio. So, next time on MLW History. <laughs> I'll begin uh, to unearth this quasi-true humble beginning of Canadian pro wrestling history from 1900 to 1930. And comparatively, I know that 30 contemporary years seems minuscule after covering, what, 6,500 million or whatever in a nutshell. But now, documentation, photography, cards, gates, and championship lore have all become possible options to explore. So I think that about does it for now. So until we speak again... Remain calm, keep strong, and stay free, everyone. She believe in shooting stars, but she believe in shoes and cars.